It began with the American dream. Which means, of course, it didn't begin in America at all. It's 1887 in a dirt-poor village in Russia. Pogroms sweep the countryside. Soldiers burn Jewish homes, and often they kill the people inside. A little Jewish boy named Lazar Mayer and his family flee to a new life, a safer life, in Long Island. But things aren't easy in America either. Lazar's parents speak only Yiddish, so at age 12, he has to quit school and sell scrap metal to put food on the family table. But Lazar is smart, tough, and hardworking, and he realizes an immigrant kid can make money in a new form of entertainment. Moving pictures. First, Lazar buys movie theaters. Then, he moves to Los Angeles to make his own movies. And by age 40, this Jewish kid who escaped the pogroms is president of the most powerful movie studio in the world. But not before he anglicizes his name and gives himself a jaunty middle initial. Lazar Mayer becomes Louis B. Mayer. The second M in MGM. Louis B. Mayer believed in the American dream. His own story proved it was possible. He bragged he was born on the 4th of July. That was a lie. But Mayer knew the power of a good story. And he eventually convinced Washington, D.C. that stories like his, the same stories that moved filmgoers, could move voters. If Hollywood and Washington worked together, Mayer was sure they would change America. From Focus Features, welcome to Zoom, the podcast for curious people who want a closer look at the history behind today's movies. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is the third episode of our season dedicated to revolutionary cinema. And this time around, the word revolutionary is literal. We're going to learn how the movies influenced some historic elections, including the winning campaigns of FDR and JFK, and the losing campaign of a socialist who scared rich studio bosses to death. We'll go inside the White House's private movie theater to learn our former president's favorite movies and what their pick says about them. And I had gone a little over the top when I took a couple of days off with Chelsea to watch all six police academy movies back to back. And we'll find out what happened when 16 fictional movie presidents competed in their own election. Which is the best of all time? Can we trust movie fans to make the right decision? Dwayne Elizondo Camacho, five-time Ultimate SmackDown champion, porn superstar, and president of the United States. Maybe not. But nonetheless, slip on your Uncle Sam stripes and salute your movie screen, because you're about to learn every last star-spangled fact about Hollywood and American politics. What do we want in a political candidate? That's the big question behind Jon Stewart's new movie satire, Irresistible, which takes direct aim at Hollywood-style political campaigns. In it, Steve Carell plays a political consultant who uses every media trick he knows to influence a small-town Midwestern race. Well, here's the idea. I get on a plane, and I go to Wisconsin, and I use this guy to road test a more rural-friendly message. It's a mayoral race. In the middle of nowhere, I don't get how this helps us. We have to get the rural voters back into the tent, even just a little bit. 
Well, if it's all the same to you, I'll stick with pandering to our special interest groups. Thank you very much. Thanks to The Daily Show, Jon Stewart has spent years at the intersection of Hollywood and politics. Watching Irresistible, you can practically hear him say, I have seen crazy things, and I need you to know about them. And modern politics is crazy. TV ads, Twitter clapbacks, Facebook memes from your relatives that may or may not be misspelled. It's noisy, it's chaotic, and it is unrecognizable from the way political campaigns were conducted a hundred years ago. Back then, party bosses had all of the power, and every important debate took place behind closed doors. Early in the 20th century, uh, political negotiations were really rooted in parties themselves. Catherine Kramer Brownell is an associate professor of history at Purdue and author of Showbiz Politics, Hollywood and American Political Life. The political system depended on ideas of patronage, right? You were a loyal Democrat or you were a loyal Republican. You turned out and you voted in all of these elections and you might get a job if your party was in power. Uh, You depended on party press for information or parties would give you handouts. Uh, They really controlled how people understood and experienced politics. Brownell says it's not that party bosses weren't aware that the movies, this new form of entertainment, could reach more voters than a handout. They were. They just didn't like it. Films were cheap, and anyone that purchased a ticket could go in there and sit next to anyone else. And so it's this more democratic atmosphere that really concerned those people who had that other type of cultural authority that was being challenged. Not only was the medium a threat, its stars were too. These early movie idols were easily more popular than politicians. President William H. Taft was in office during the first days of Hollywood. At one point, he took a cross-country train trip with silent star Francis X. Bushman and saw fans rush the train at every stop to see Bushman. I envy you, Taft reportedly told him. All the people love you, and I can't have the love of half the people. Aw, poor little president. But this is where Louis B. Mayer, Mr. Born on the Fourth of July, saw an opportunity. Hollywood bosses like him had money and glamour and publicity, but they didn't have respect. These industry executives, they are Jewish immigrants. They want to claim their Americanness, their identity. Uh, they're facing anti-Semitism, which is rampant in the 1920s and 1930s. And so they're, they're not allowed into certain country clubs because they're Jewish. And so they're trying to craft an American identity and a, a, a place in the power structure. So in 1928... Mayer offered to give his money and glamour and publicity to Republican presidential candidate Herbert Hoover. Forget closed doors and party bosses, Hollywood would get Hoover elected. And this Jewish middle school dropout would prove he belonged in those fancy country clubs. Hoover wasn't totally convinced. He thought Hollywood would only help him, quote, get votes from morons. Hoover's advisor agreed, but also noted, quote, three-fourths of voters are moronic enough to be persuaded by their eyes and emotions. Mayer promoted Hoover with passion. He took out ads in Variety. He convinced celebrities to endorse Hoover and to donate tons of money. Mayer groomed Hoover like one of his starlets. When he gave a good speech, Mayer sent him a good job telegram. And Hoover won. The first person he invited to spend the night at the White House? Louis B. Mayer. At last, respect. Plus bonus, when Mayer needed to borrow a real Navy battleship for a movie prop, 
He could just, you know, call the president. Politics had changed forever. All of a sudden, political candidates and political leaders don't have to just rely on the party to disseminate their message and to connect to voters. They can actually turn to these new mass media formats、uh, to connect to voters. Alas for Mayor, Hoover was not a popular president. Soon after he took office, the stock market crashed. Cue the Great Depression. 15 million Americans out of work. In 1932, Louis B. Mayer still supported his buddy's re election campaign. But Mayer had inspired other studio moguls to dip their toes into politics, and they backed the competition Franklin Delano Roosevelt. True to Hollywood form, they upped the spectacle factor. Jack Warner threw FDR a star studded parade, and he made damn sure it was enormous. It's a big parade that he has all of his workers, who, by the way, had to participate because they all have these morality contracts, which really controlled some of their public behaviors. And so Warner could invoke that and make sure that all of the people who worked for him were there and they were happy about it and that they weren't criticizing or protesting. And he has, you know, Will Rogers is there and gives a speech on behalf of Warner and,、uh, and the studio and he welcomes Roosevelt. Now, this introduction hasn't been very,、uh, well, you know, it hasn't been very, perhaps very uh, uh, learned or very flowery, but、uh, remember, you're only a candidate. <laughs> Come back and see us as a president. I'll do right by you. Because, because, because I'm certainly wasting no oratory on a prospect. Warner, as an astudio executive, understands that there are multiple layers of this publicity, right? So it's covered when Roosevelt comes in, but it's also filmed and then shown as a part of the newsreel for upcoming features as well. So no matter where you lived, you were like, Oh, wow.、Um, Will Rogers really likes FDR. Exactly, exactly.、Mm-hmm. FDR understood media strategy. He understood that this was a way to connect to a new demographic of voters. He wants to bring in workers and immigrants, and especially people from urban areas.、Uh, and so he recognizes that those are. Moviegoers, and that this is a way to connect to them. For Warner and the liberal movie barons, getting FDR elected was step one. Step two was getting Americans to buy into FDR's New Deal, to believe that he could end the Depression. And for that, Hollywood and FDR needed movies. We're in the money, the sky is sunny. Old man, Depression, you are through, you've done us wrong. Happy movies, like Gold Diggers of 1933. Movies that told audiences everything was fine, even though the Depression was at its very worst. In a movie called Stand Up and Cheer, Hollywood and the White House basically admitted they were working together. Just listen to the movie's fictional president, who practically quotes Roosevelt's nothing to fear but fear itself speech. We are endeavoring to pilot the ship past the most treacherous of all rocks fear. The government now proposes to dissolve that destructive rock in a gale of laughter. To that end, It has created a new cabinet office, that of Secretary of Amusement, whose duty it shall be to amuse and entertain the people, to make them forget their troubles. One of Stand Up and Cheer's weapons of mass amusement? A five year old actress named Shirley Temple. 
in real life, FDR loved her. He said, quote, During this depression, when the spirit of the people is lower than at any other time, it is a splendid thing that for just 15 cents, an American can go to a movie and look at the smiling face of a baby and forget his troubles. And by the end of the movie, Shirley Temple is so cute, she does cure the depression. The depression is over. The depression is over? Over. Do you realize that? There is no unemployment. Fear has been banished. Confidence reborn. Poverty has been wiped out. Laughter resounds throughout the nation. The people are happy again. We're out of the red! Sadly, in real life, America was not out of the red. The depression dragged on. So, that same year in California, a reformer named Upton Sinclair had a radical plan to actually wipe out poverty, not just tell movie audiences that Shirley Temple solved it. Sinclair believed in big change. The Jungle, his muckraking book about squalid meatpacking plants, had inspired the founding of the FDA. Upton was a socialist, but he ran for governor as a Democrat, and voters loved him. Except the movie studio bosses, who worried he'd raise their taxes. So Hollywood came up with a dirty plan, a fake documentary, that pretended to be neutral. Ladies and gentlemen, I am the inquiring cameraman. I pry into offices and shops and stores and restaurants. I knock on the doors of homes, all for the purpose of digging out voters of California to express their views for your edification. Remember, they're not actors. I don't rehearse them. I'm impartial. I ask them questions only to help them express themselves more clearly. That's a lie. Some of those voters were actors. And the real voters were carefully selected. If they were missing teeth, if they stumbled over their words, if they looked lazy and poor, those were the ones voting for Upton Sinclair. If they had a suit and a job, probably not. Would you mind uh, telling us how you intend to vote for governor next month? Aye, sure. I'm going to vote for Upton Sinclair. I see. And I will tell it to the... I'm going to uh, vote for Frank Merriam for governor uh, for the reason that uh, he is for democracy rather than socialism. Tellingly, even the Sinclair supporters gave him backhanded compliments. Would you mind telling us your choice? I have Umpton Sinclair in mind, but his, his plans are so far ahead of the times that I am doubtful as to whether it would be right for me to vote that way. I'm going to vote for Upton Sinclair. Will you tell us why? Upton St. Clair is the author of the Russian government, and it worked out very well there, and I think it should do here. The movie bosses also convinced Californians that if St. Clair won, the state would be flooded with homeless people, all looking for handouts. The bosses convinced their pals at the newspapers to run photos of rail cars filled with what they called invading bums. The bums were also actors. And one scary photo was actually a still from a Warner Brothers melodrama about teenage hobos. So many people really didn't understand what was news and what was fully fabricated. And so it was a really powerful election. I mean, the way you describe it, the 1930s sound like the 2010s and the internet. (laughs) I think that there are a lot of connections there, absolutely, because it's a time when the media is changing very dramatically. The gatekeepers of American society and information are being challenged because of this new media. Uh, And so there's a great opportunity, but then there's also a, a danger in terms of 
how people understand uh, the information and how it shapes their lives. Guess what? Upton Sinclair lost. Think of these three elections, Hoover, FDR, Sinclair, as kind of a tennis match between Hollywood and Washington, separate towns trading glamour and exposure for power and respect. It wasn't until the early 1960s that a young, ambitious kid who grew up in both towns was able to unite them. Enter John F. Kennedy, the first born and raised celebrity president. Joseph Kennedy, his father, was a studio executive during the 1920s before moving back to Massachusetts. And he kept one eye on developments within the industry. Uh, He subscribed to trade magazines. He followed the industry closely and kept some of those networks he had created while he was working out there. And John F. Kennedy visited the Hollywood studios during the 1930s when he was growing up. He was very familiar with Hollywood. One of my favorite photos of JFK is from the 1942 Oscars. He's just 24 years old, incredibly handsome, in his military uniform, and he's sitting at a table next to megastar Gary Cooper. JFK has leaned all the way back in his chair, and he's grinning at Cooper, but not like a fan. Like he's studying him. Like JFK is analyzing what makes a man walk into a room and everyone loves him. When JFK ran for president, he had no problem getting celebrity endorsements. By 1960, that was standard campaign stuff. But he went one step further. He turned himself into a celebrity, starting with the primary race, which everyone expected Lyndon B. Johnson to win. John F. Kennedy realized he had to do something different. So there were 16 primaries that were open. So he decided that he would go to the primary trail. He would generate all sorts of attention to his candidacy to show the Democratic establishment that he was the person who could defeat Richard Nixon and the election that year. JFK got his buddy Frank Sinatra to write him an anthem. K-E-double-N-E-D-Y Jack's the nation's favorite guy Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track At every stop, the crowds went wild singing. Actually, if you look at videos, you can see that they have the song and the lyrics were distributed to the crowd in advance. And they're singing these songs. They're singing these cheers for John F. Kennedy. It's well coordinated. And all of this is captured by a film producer who's uh, who's filming everything he's doing on the campaign trail. And then he uses that footage to make advertisements about this grand reception that John F. Kennedy is receiving and how he is inspiring the nation. These are the tactics of a Hollywood film publicity department. This is how you create a star. And he's using these lessons of the star system to bolster his candidacy and it works. Hollywood had already changed how candidates ran campaigns. JFK's celebrity-style success changed who made a good candidate. It shifted strategies where all of a sudden someone who was a performer was valued as, as a key political operative and a potential candidate. So they look to those people who have television skills and they gain more power within the political party. And then politicians start to emulate and respect uh, what they are bringing to the table. Four years later, when the star of the movie Bedtime for Bonzo gave a nationally televised standing ovation speech on behalf of the candidate Barry Goldwater. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. 
We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. The Republican Party was like, yes, we have found our JFK. A couple years after that, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. And after that, well, it seems like all of Hollywood was running for office. The Hollywood superstar and the small town mayor are very much the same man. Clint Eastwood insists he doesn't want to ride off in search of higher office. He is, he says, content with small town politics and big time movies. I'm running for governor to lead a movement for change and give California back its future. New from the Reform Party. It's the new Jesse Ventura action figure. You can make Jesse battle special interest group and party politics. We politicians have powers the average man can't comprehend. Yes, that is a real campaign commercial. Even Shirley Temple, the celebrated savior of the Great Depression, grew up to run for Congress. So it's pretty clear. When it comes to Hollywood and politics, things now tend to flow in both directions. While our dimpled, chiseled screen darlings are constantly eyeing political office, political officials are constantly eyeing movies. But sometimes not just as propaganda tools, right? Like, just like us, you know, politicians must watch movies because it's fun to watch movies. I asked Anne Hornaday, longtime film critic at DC's local rag, The Washington Post. I have had a chance to meet some public figures and leaders, and they're almost invariably big movie fans, and they love talk. People love to talk about movies. And it never ceases to amaze me that people who are really smart, they are at the height of whatever profession they're in, whether it's foreign policy or they're not particularly sophisticated viewers. You know, like sometimes they don't know the difference between a documentary or a feature or they won't understand how something isn't like they almost enter like a childlike state when they're watching movies. And it's every other aspect of their life is just like super, super highly like vigilant and, you know, controlling and and. Uh, wanting to get up to speed on everything. But it's like, go to the movies and just like, let it wash over you and have a good time. But what movies, I wonder, are they letting wash over them? I'd wager the most important movie theater in the country is the president's private one, in the east wing of the White House. Why? Because sometimes what the president sees, the president does. Presidential libraries keep pretty good records of what presidents watch. We know, for example, that on the weekend of June 22nd, 1984, Ronald Reagan watched his own movie, Bedtime for Bonzo, as well as Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. But sometimes the White House's movie repertoire has been more problematic. Starting with the first movie ever screened there, The Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's racist blockbuster that lied about post-Civil War Reconstruction, and inspired some fans to resurrect the Ku Klux Klan. We also know that George W. Bush screened the heroic shoot-'em-up Black Hawk Down, while he was deciding to send troops to the Middle East. And Nixon watched Patton over and over. It was his favorite movie. The week he decided to invade Cambodia, he saw it twice. All real Americans love the sting of battle. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Nixon doesn't seem to have understood that Patton was a satire. All right, Anne. So presidents are not film critics. They're presidents. But film critic to film critic, how about this? I'm going to tell you a few presidents' favorite films, and then let's talk about why they liked them. Yeah, that's fun. That's a great parlor game, Amy. That's made for us. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I want to start with JFK. He loved Dr. No. James Bond, 007. Licensed to kill whom he pleases 
where he pleases, when he pleases. That cracks me up every time. Don't you just see him as like wanting to be that dashing guy getting all the girls? I mean, you know, no disrespect to Mrs. Kennedy's memory. I, that's 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 oddly on point for good old JFK, <laughs> I think. What do you make of it? Yeah, I think it's like it capitalizes the suaveness, the glamour, the sense of kind of cruising into things. It's almost too it's almost too easy. You know, it's like, of course, he's going to love that. And the. The cool cars. So then he picks like an ultimate macho movie, movie, movie star that is his favorite. You know what? You're exactly right. And then where? Let's see. Like, who's a girl that you know, could be a Bond girl? Oh, Marilyn over here. You know. Okay. Well, what about Obama loving The Godfather one and two? I mean, two movies about power, loyalty. You spend time with your family? Sure, I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. It's very much of a piece with him as a person, just the way he presents. He's just a classic American figure. His rhetoric is cool and considered, and it's not particularly inflammatory. So that movie and that man, I, mean, I just it feels like it's very much of a piece with the taste that we saw on display all those years of just like just being very, very well crafted, you know. Just true. And The Godfather is all about fathers and sons, you know, living up to your father. Which makes me think of Obama's first book, you know, Dreams of My Father. And and there's that idea kind of that's shared in both of them of, I don't want to be a leader, but I'm going to have to become a leader. I'm, a, I'm obligated to become a leader. So it does, it kind of flatters that form of ego. Like, well, okay, <laughs> you're right. I am the guy for the, you know, <laughs> and then rising to the occasion. Well, speaking of being called upon to be a great man, I mean, that's also the story of High Noon, which, according to projections at the White House, is the favorite movie of four presidents. It's basically this moral struggle, right, between this one man who's trying to get people to do the right thing and for various reasons, cowardice and people are not coming to his side. So it turns out to be just like this one guy against the, the evil, the forces of evil. The judges left town, Harvey's quit, and I'm having trouble getting deputies. People got to talk themselves into law and order before they do anything about it. Maybe because down deep, they don't care. They just don't care. But it's also kind of funny, you know, this like one man on his own theme is this touchstone for presidents. And it cuts across party lines. I mean, the four presidents who like it, it's two Republicans and two Democrats. It's Eisenhower and it's Reagan. And it's also Truman and Clinton. Yeah, I mean, it, it would completely um, feed into their, you know, and I'm not saying this cynically. I just think like you have to believe in yourself, you know, to want to aspire to that office. It's like you, you must believe that you can make a difference or you wouldn't do it. So I'm giving them totally the benefit of the doubt of saying, like, of course, they're going to love a movie that that believes in that, too, that one man can make a difference. You know, one person can make a difference, I hope. Actually, it occurs to me. I mean, do you think your work has some impact on these people? I mean, you are the film critic at The Washington Post. You are uniquely poised to shape presidential hearts and minds. Call me madcap, but... I don't think the movie reviews are the first thing they turn to when they read the Washington Post that day. <laughs> well, you know, maybe it's lying around, you know, it could be lying on the coffee table and they just happen to kind of glance at it as they walk to the situation room to um, narrowly avoid a nuclear war. Which brings us neatly to our next stop on this journey through movies and politics. Is this going to set off the doomsday machine? Dimitri, there's no point in you getting hysterical at a moment like this. That scene, of course, is from Stanley Kubrick's black comedy, Dr. Strangelove. President Merkin Muffley, played by Peter Sellers, sits in the Situation Room. 
and meekly tells the Soviet premier by phone that a U.S. general might have just triggered World War III. Muffley is just one of 16 fictional movie presidents, which film writer and podcaster David Sims pitted against each other in a bracket for The Atlantic magazine. It seemed appropriate to talk to David about it. So you let voters decide who is the all-time best American president. I mean, that is democracy in action. Yes. I had 16 presidents um, from television and movies, mostly movies, but a few TV stars. And I pitted them against each other sort of thematically. And from what I remember, people voted on Twitter, something like that, and whittled it down to a final two. Okay. And right off the bat, I noticed, well, first, there are a lot of 90s movies on this list. And second, I mean... When I think about the actors who are playing these parts, John Travolta, Harrison Ford, Martin Sheen, you could kind of see that there's a presidential type with the occasional Morgan Freeman thrown in. The 90s were really the time of, that's when we were casting every sort of like baby boomer favorite. It's also a Ronald Reagan after effect, right? Like we'd had an actor as the president who had that kind of like Hollywood look, but so like, you know, maybe, maybe a little of that uh, is still lapping up on the shore. Okay, let's get into it. So, round one. You pitted Michael Douglas and the American president, who goes to war with Congress, versus Bill Pullman and Independence Day, who goes to war with aliens. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Yeah, I mean, Pullman took it. Yeah. Why do you think Pullman won? I think at the time, my justification was like Pullman's actions in Independence Day are, are more consequential. He saves the world from aliens. Like, this is, the you know, this is a big deal. But um, until he gets into a fighter jet and gives the big inspirational speech, he's not a particularly, he's easily the least interesting of the, of the leads of Independence Day. I'm sort of surprised by who was the winner here. I think now I would go the other way. All right. So then you set up a cage match between Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove. And watch me nail this. Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, played by Terry Crews in the movie Idiocracy. You you know, the famous future president who's an ex-wrestler, porn star, and the guy who's in charge with rescuing the future. Now, I understand everyone's emotional right now. But listen up. I got a three-point plan to fix everything. Break it down, Camacho! Okay, I love that Dwayne Elizondo, Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, actually won. Because he does kind of learn on the job, right? Yes, it's true. He does have an actual arc. Obviously, the initial joke in Idiocracy is just like, oh, well, you know, everyone's lost their minds. But yes, he does actually realize that he should... um, irrigate plants with water rather than a Powerade or whatever, right? Isn't that the arc of that movie? That (laughs) That he could stop the drought. (laughs) That they've forgotten how to irrigate. Right, yes. One of the matchups I thought was really striking is, you know, Jeff Bridges gets an Oscar nomination for The Contender, and he still loses the vote to Morgan Freeman and Deep Impact, who pretty much bungles blowing up a giant comet. Yeah, they kind of just, they biff it because the movie wants an asteroid to hit Earth. So, like, the mission goes wrong and all that. Whereas... I mean, I think the reason he won, beyond name recognition and the fact that that's a bigger movie, it's just The Contender is not a big movie. That, Even though it got laden with Oscar nominations, that's sort of a weird uh, outlier in the sort of political movie trend of the early 2000s. In a way, what you're describing, that race you're describing, kind of captures the political system. Like, here's a guy who does a pretty good job, 
And then here's the guy who's right. just really popular, but a screw up. <laughs> Fair enough. You're right. It's, I can't even remember the name of Morgan Freeman's character. Now I have to look it up. Okay. While you do that, I'm just going to skip ahead to the winner of your bracket. Spoiler alert to our listeners, by the way. It was Harrison Ford in Air Force One, which is basically a president who's an action hero. And it makes me want to ask you, does our taste in fictional politicians change our taste in actual politicians? Like, if we see Harrison Ford killing terrorists in Air Force One, does it make it seem less insane when Arnold Schwarzenegger is running for governor six years later and you're like, oh, yeah, he can do it? It went from, it's a joke in Demolition Man, if you remember, that Arnold Schwarzenegger eventually became the president, that movie set in the future. The Schwarzenegger Library? Yes, the Schwarzenegger Presidential Library. Wasn't he an actor when Stop. you- Stop, he was president? Yes. Even though he was not born in this country, his popularity at the time caused the 61st Amendment, which states that- I don't want to know. It just went from being a joke to something movies encourage, something that other politicians encourage. And I guess by the early 2000s, voters were like, yeah, we should have, we should just have like these square jawed movie stars running things. Yeah, we really need to start differentiating between who looks like a good politician, thanks to, you know, the movies, and who is a good politician. Which takes us back to Jon Stewart's Irresistible, the main project of which is satirizing our own stereotypes about who is electable. You hear it in the way Steve Carell, the campaign guy, describes his perfect Wisconsin mayoral candidate, played by Chris Cooper. Did I happen to mention that he is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps? Yes. And a farmer. Um, and did I happen to mention that he's a widower? It's impressive. Right. A man who makes Joe the Plumber look like Dukakis and mom jeans and a f***ing Easter bonnet? <laughs> That's one of Jon Stewart's sharpest jokes, that Carell, the supposed political genius, is so close-minded about who can be a politician. Except... It's not a joke. That attitude is playing out in government as we speak. One of the current president's favorite compliments to his cabinet is praising them as, quote, straight out of central casting. These are central casting. If I'm doing a movie, I pick you, General. General Mattis. I talked to a woman for whom that statement felt very personal, Meredith Tucker. She did the casting for Irresistible and another political satire that you have probably heard of, HBO's Veep. Yeah, which the fact that Donald Trump utters anything about casting and his and his staffing choices is like a knife to the heart. Um, the thing is, it's one thing if you're doing it in a movie or a television show. It's another thing when the person might, you know, actually has to have a proper job. And I'm guessing for a casting director, central casting isn't even that great of a compliment. That is like on the nose. That's that's sort of what you do try to avoid. Where do you think there is to go next with how we show politicians in films? 20 years ago, if somebody wanted to cast, you know, brand new member of the House of Representatives to present an actor who looked like AOC or who looked like Ilhan or Rashida or Alana, people would be like, no, 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 no. That's not what they look like. It, real life is almost loosening up your argument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ten years ago, when you say, oh, we need a senator for this thing, people would, you know, let's have a white man. It's a great time to be able to do stuff like, like, like this. So we're back to the question. What do we want in a candidate? An action hero or a stateswoman? A boss or a negotiator? 
A dreamer or Harrison Ford fulfilling our dream of kicking a terrorist out of an airplane? Most of the time, we seem to cast our votes for whoever's got the best story. So let's remember to ask, who's telling this story? And why? See you at the ballot box. And we'll see you again, right here, in a few months, when we'll talk about femme fatales with this year's Sundance sensation, Emerald Fennel. You are not going to want to miss that, so be sure you're subscribed to Zoom now. As for this episode, it was written by me, Amy Nicholson. Our senior producer and editor-in-chief is Rico Galliano. He was also FDR. Our VP of editing is Jackson Musker. Stephen Colon engineered and did the sound design. Our ever-evolving Zoom theme music was composed by Martin Ostwick. Graphic design by the fabulous Kim Troxell. And thanks, as always, to the fabulous Angela Visagas and Joshua Kornblit at Focus Features. Till next time, stay curious. Hey, Zoom listeners. Love movies? Focus Features would like to invite you to join its loyalty program. Sign up today and access once-in-a-lifetime experiences, including film premieres, set visits, exclusive content, and so much more. Go to FocusInsider.com and join for free today.